Kellen and Bud, I know you can hear me back there. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for leading us in that this morning. That was beautiful. Man, blessed, blessed me in so many ways. I feel the treasure to be witness to what God is doing in little Addie's life and um, little Brian's life and Jacqueline's life and in the lives of two families. We're scandalized by an amazingly awesome God. Good scandal. Thank y'all. Thank you. Bud and Jill, wherever they're back and getting changed, y'all can hear me, I know. We're going to pray for these guys right now. And I also want us to pray for family that's with us this morning. Uh, Lance and Sarah Keeling. They have little Joshua and Caleb. Uh, Lance and Sarah are um, running an orphanage in Chiapas, Mexico. I hope I pronounced that right. Uh, it's the southernmost little state in Mexico. And uh, they're ra- uh, running an orphanage there, raising kids in the faith with hopes of them eventually someday being deployed to far corners of the world as missionaries. So pretty cool dream that Crosspoint has had the privilege of participating in to some extent. And I, I encourage you, if you have a chance to meet Lance and uh, Sarah, where are y'all sitting? Raise your hand. Row right in front of me. Okay, good. There they are, right there. Lance is um, Katie Kiesnick's brother, so there's a family connection there. So Kiesnicks are sitting right by them, so we're glad y'all are with us. They're here for a couple months, uh, kind of uh, just stateside refitting, refueling, and uh, kind of a privilege uh, that y'all are sharing some of your time with us. And I hope that we'll have a chance to break some bread with you. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, in these next few minutes, uh, first of all, I just want to thank you so much for the sweet privilege of seeing two dads baptized children and uh, Lord we are amazed by your grace in uh, blessing us with little plots of soil and um, just offer them up thankful that you are the God of the garden and uh, that you've just called us to be faithful in sowing truth into their lives and that you'll give the increase in your time and for your glory we pray for little Addie thank you so much for her conviction her testimony your profession of faith Um, Thank you for Brian and Jacqueline for their profession of faith. We just pray that you'll use each of them for your glory, that they'll be available and ready instruments um, with testimonies that are out loud, uh, with worship that is aromatic and salty and bright. Uh, Just so blessed by these families, so blessed by your work in them. We give you all the glory. I want to pray for Lance and Sarah and just thank you so much for calling them to the far corners. Thank you for the work that they are about on the southern tip of Mexico. Lord, we pray that in these next few months, that they are, next few weeks, that they're here, that they are just really, really blessed and refilled and refitted for useful work. And uh, I just pray that they'll go back to the field, continuing to see you as the God of the garden in that plot of soil, and uh, that, that they'll be able to entrust the children into your hands daily, as I'm sure they are right now. Uh, Lord, I pray for an opportunity to uh, that the, this body will have a chance to spend some time with this family, uh, getting to know them and getting to walk with them. Uh, Lord, in these next few minutes, I pray that um, that you will get your due, that Satan will get his, and that we will see a proper biblical truth perspective of who does what. I just pray that you'll be glorified in these next few minutes. Praying these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> I have a little thing going on online right now on Facebook. A little conversation. Facebook is just weird. Just it's the weirdest dynamic to me. 
it's a collection of people from all different phases of your life. If you've, you know, you got your high school friends, your college friends, you know, wherever you've lived, you pick up a couple of friends and all these friends are sort of in a little melting pot in there. And anything you say, you know, you might have it aimed at a certain group of friends, but all people have access to it. So it can end up resulting in some pretty unusual things. I have a uh, guy that I went to college with. I think he was a class or two behind me. He was an acquaintance. And um, I didn't know him real well, but uh, he, he was in the same unit that I was in, in the cadet corps at A&M. And uh, he and I became friends on Facebook a long time ago. You know, you, you just kind of collect um, folks that you may not be real close to, but you may have been acquaintances with. This was the case with this uh, friend of mine, Greg. Uh, I posted something earlier this week that I really thought was pretty innocuous, and it's turned into something pretty interesting. Uh, it was, I, I look at CNN each morning, the CNN news. It just gives me kind of a quick picture of what's going on in the news. And I, I saw a, a little video clip from a conference um, that had a series of jokes about President Obama. And I, I introduced the, the thing with, I'm not an Obama basher. Because I believe what my Bible says, that Romans chapter 13, that he's in a place of authority because God put him there. And I need to respect that place. It doesn't mean that I agree with everything that he does or says, but I'm not one of those to, to bash him. But then I said, yeah, this is still pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not bashing him. I'm just laughing. It's different. No, actually, I, I, I really do have respect for the office and, um, and respect for the God who placed him there. Well, Greg responded. Nobody else responded. And um, Greg responded and said, uh, why, do, why do you feel like God would be involved in our state governance or our, our, our country's governance? And, and I wrote back and I said, I referred to Romans 13 and quoted it and said, I, I believe what God tells me. I believe that God is sovereign over all that. And so he replied back and said, well, do you, do you think that he, was, um, that he blessed um, or that he was sovereign over, or that he was just involved in Rome, because this was in the book of Romans, that this just had to do with the, the Roman Empire, or if it has to do with every empire regime. And I wrote back and I said, well, I referred to a passage that says that God does not change. And I said, well, I think that God, as he's sovereign over that time, he's sovereign over this time, and sovereign over the Roman Empire, that he's sovereign over the power of our president. And um, I kind of had a sense where he may go from there, and sure enough, he did. He said, well, do you think that he blessed, that he was blessing the time of slavery, blessing um, um, the Jim Crow period, that he was blessing the Holocaust? You know, essentially saying, well, where was God during that time? Do you think he's smiling at that? And I wrote back and I said, well, I think that God was in the same place there. And in those times that he was on September the 11th, 2001, on his throne. I believe that he was in the same place there at that time that he was on January 12th of this year when the earth shook in Haiti. I believe that he was on his throne while um, the Holocaust was going on and that he could have prevented it. He could have stopped it. And that he didn't for some higher reason. And I shared with Greg. Greg doesn't know anything about our sto- our, my family story at that, that point. So I shared with Greg on, on Facebook there that we have two of our three kids are visually impaired. And Christy and I have had to kind of work through these issues of where is God when difficult things happen. And that we've found God faithful. 
And that frankly, if God were the kind of God that was caught off guard by Satan, like he was snoozing, or if, you know, Satan got one up on him, that I would hate that God. I would have no use for that God. If God was somehow, and Satan kind of duped it, Satan and God are duking it out, and Satan somehow is winning during the Holocaust, and, you know, winning during slavery, and winning in the day that Evan and Luke were born, then I've got no use for that God. Because I'm just going to say, that's not God. But that I believe in an all-powerful, absolutely sovereign, able God that either ordains or allows all things. Watch my hand movements. Ordains or allows all things. Ephesians tells us that he works all things according to the counsel of his will, his good will. And that's good news to me. I can, I can worship that God. And it, I was thinking about how the story unfolded and what might have fed the story or fed the view uh, that Greg had of God is that maybe in our maybe it's our context maybe it's our world because in our world God really has a pretty small picture and Satan has a distorted picture in our world we kind of have an exaggerated disproportionate view of Satan and a deficient and incomplete view of God and they kind of go together think about our movies the movies that depict Satan are all scary Omen, I think some of those movies. Um, Devil's Advocate, Constantine. I haven't seen all these, but I've seen, uh, I think I saw The Omen a long time ago, and it scared me to death. (laughs) Passion of the Christ. Satan was depicted in that movie as well as that kind of um, um, androgynous figure. We didn't know if it's a man or a woman. Wearing the black and carrying around a baby at one point, almost looked like a little pseudo Mary, an anti Mary. You know, it's scary, eee, creepy. But then the movies depicting God are all comedies. Isn't that interesting? Oh, God came out when I was a kid. George Burns, when he was alive, long, long, long time ago. The little description about Oh, God is, I just found it online yesterday. When God appears to the little kind of the little summary. When God appears to an assistant grocery manager as a good-natured old man, the Almighty selects him as messenger for the modern world. A good-natured old man? I think he's the God that spoke creation into existence. And the Pleiades and Orion hung. The God that said, let there be light, and light was. (laughs) He doesn't say, I don't think he's a good-natured old man. And there's Bruce Almighty. A little summary for Bruce Almighty. The guy next door becomes the guy upstairs. Okay. That's what our world says about God. Satan's big and scary. And God is small and funny. Doesn't reconcile with the truth. The truth is where we're going to go today in John chapter 14, verse 30. Go ahead and turn there. I'm going to tell you, too, that we share with you or kind of prepare you. Got a lot of Scripture today. And I'm going to be going quickly. And I guess as the Spirit leads me, I may call you to one or two or some specific passages. But don't feel obligated to go to every single one. I've got little tabs in my Bible for where they are, so you're not waiting for me to find them. 
so we can move expeditiously. But what I want you to see is it's Scripture, gobs of it, gobs of it. Share with you a little principle that I learned, I don't know, years, uh, within the last six or seven years in, in preaching week by week. Uh, when, when I was in the Marine Corps, and I've shared this before, but it's a good illustration, I think, or useful. When I was in the Marine Corps, the GPS units had just come, first come out, and I was in a boat raid company, so we would be dropped out of the back of a ship like 30 nautical miles off the coast, and we would have to depend on this little box to get us into land. I mean, you're in a little rubber boat. It had an engine, but, you know, you're still in the middle of the ocean, essentially. For a rubber boat, you're in the middle of the ocean. So we learned how to use this little box. And what we found early on, this little box, this thing called GPS that's so familiar to everybody now, is that if it didn't have three satellites, then it wouldn't give you a reading. And there's sometimes you're like banging it on the side. Give me three satellites. We don't know where we are. But it wouldn't give you a reading because it wouldn't give you a reading because you wouldn't know where you were. If you had less than three satellites, you couldn't do a resection. Is what it, gave. it triangulated back to where you were. Without three satellites, you didn't know where you were. And what actually is true about GPS is the more satellites that it gathers, the unit gathers, the more robust the reading. So you want a lot of satellites. And that's exactly what we're doing this morning is we're collecting satellites so we can have a real robust reading on the truth about Satan and the truth about our God. So that's what we're going to do, be doing is collecting satellites. John chapter 14, verse 30 is our springboard. And really, you know, this might be, this kind of a hallmark occasion. This is our last sermon in the chapter 14. And then we'll be moving on to chapter 15. It seems like it's a couple of years ago that we started in chapter 14. So this is a big day. Uh, we're not quite on the last verse, but we're on verse 30. Jesus says, I will no longer talk much with you. This no longer talk much actually takes up about three chapters where we will spend the next um, however long the Lord leads us. I will no longer talk with you, he says to his disciples, hours before he's nailed to the cross. He says, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. That's all we're going to look at this morning. The ruler of this world is coming and he has no claim on me. Those two points, those two things from this passage. First, I want to consider Satan being the ruler of this world. What does that look like and what does this actually mean? I'm going to show you four passages to help us kind of flesh this out. The first one's in John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. John, the same guy that wrote the book of John, writes. He says, we know we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The John who would have heard these words on hours, the hours before Christ was crucified to a cross, referring to the ruler of this world, writes regarding that statement right here. He says, we know that we are still, this is after Christ has already been risen, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Next passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's going to be quick, fast, and furious. Like a machine gun kind of picking up some passages, some satellites. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. It's Paul writing to the church in Corinth. He says, even if our gospel... 
is veiled. Even if this good news that we shared is not visible by all, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, in the case of those who are perishing, the God of this world, this is referring to the same ruler that Jesus spoke of there in John 14, the same ruler that John spoke of over there in 1 John. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So in John 14, Jesus refers to this ruler of this world, this Satan as the ruler of this world. In 1 John 5, John says that the world lies in the power of the evil one. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they don't see the truth about Christ. Sounds like he's got some significant power, some, some significant influence. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul is writing here to the church in Ephesus. He's writing to a church that's primarily made of Gentiles, and he's speaking about their condition before Christ. He's also referring to his condition before Christ as a Jew, now a believing Jew. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, And you, you Gentiles, you Ephesian Gentiles, you guys were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. Listen. Following the prince of the power of the air. That sounds pretty creepy right there. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul says, among whom we all once lived according to the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The thing that we can add to Satan's job description there is that he's the prince of the power of the air. And everyone before Christ walked according to his ways. We were all once blinded by the God of this world. We all once followed him, including, in Paul's case, a believing Jew. Now, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. It's the last of the four. We're building a job description for this being, Satan. 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter writes, Peter's a guy that would have been there that night and heard those words as well. The ruler of this world is coming. And here's what he says about that ruler. He's writing to believers. He says, you guys be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Peter says, man, you better be sober and vigilant because this adversary, this Satan, prowls around looking for someone to eat. So resist him. If you just take in these passages, just the things that we've gathered so far on this job description, that the world lies in the power of this being, that this being has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so that they can't see the truth about Christ, that this being is one that we've all walked according to, this prince of the power of the air, that this being prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to eat. If you take those things in, you've got to acknowledge that he does have some power, that he does have some influence, that he does have some ability, and it is quite frightening. If all we had were these satellites... 
then those movies really would be scary. It wouldn't just be the music that made him scary. Isn't that weird? It just, it, that, they would be absolutely scary because this creature would be somebody who would cause all of us to tremble. Looks like the ruler of this world really does have some power and influence. But this passage, first, or excuse me, John chapter 14, verse 30, it says that where Jesus says he's the ruler of this world is a beautiful example of a passage that is completely true, yet it doesn't reveal the truth completely. The passages that we've shared are completely true, yet they don't reveal the truth completely. If we look just at these passages, we would consider this Satan, this being, as a bully. Think about the bullies that I knew when I was growing up. I may have been one of them. But, you know, every bully's got his own bully. And the bullies that I think of all had big freckles and big fat fists. They were mean, man. And I'm thinking about Satan like a big bully, scary, and he's all you see. You know how it is in the mind of a kid who's got a bully at school? There are no teachers. There's no principal. There's no mom and dad. There's just this bully. And then there's lunch break. And then there's recess. And he rules lunch and recess. And he makes my life miserable. If these passages were all we had, then we would look at him like a big bully and we couldn't think about any thing else but what I want to do in the next few minutes is I want to pan out and show us the principle I want to show us the father the dad the big brother I'm not calling God big brother I'm talking with the illustration that puts the bully in context let's go to Job chapter 1 Job chapter 1. I do want you to turn here, even if you haven't been a turner. Page uh, number on your ESV should be 417. Let's put this bully in context. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. This man had seven sons, he had three daughters, he had 7,000 sheep, 7,000 sheep, he had 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and then very many servants. Isn't that funny? They don't even number the servants. This man was rich beyond imagination for that day and age. Now, verse 6, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan, the ruler of this world that Jesus speaks of in John 14, Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. That sounds like a roaring lion, doesn't it? Prowling. Going to and fro, looking for someone to eat. And the Lord said to Satan, you, you hungry? Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for no reason? Doesn't he have like thousands of every kind of critter? He's got tons of kids. 
You blessed him beyond measure. Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But you know what, God? You stretch out your hand and touch all his stuff and he will curse you. That's what Satan says before God. You stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, okay, I'll take you up on that. Behold, all that he has is in your hands. Now watch, he gives him some allowance. You go this far, but then he gives him some boundaries. You go no further. He says then, next, he says, only against him do not stretch out your hand. You take all that he has, but you don't touch his flesh. You go this far and no further. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. The next few verses kind of unpack what happens. The sons and daughters were having a little festivity time of getting together and enjoying each other. Meanwhile, the oxen and the donkeys were taken by the Sabaeans and all the servants were killed. And then the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants. And then the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took all of them and struck down all the servants. And then add an insult to injury. Just the worst possible thing that could have happened to Job. A big strong wind comes and knocks the roof down on the house full of all his sons and daughters. And kills all of them except for the one servant that could come report to Job. And then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground. And he worshipped. (laughs) He worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord, watch this, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the next verse is key. It helps us understand. Was Job, did Job make a mistake? He said, the Lord took all this away. And in the next verse it said, in all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. That's key. Where was God on the day that the roof fell in on on Job's kids? He was on his throne. Where was Job on the day that his oxen were taken, his donkeys were taken, his sheep were toasted? He was on his throne. He was on the same place he was on September the 11th, 2001, on his throne. Same place he was on January 12th of this year. Same place he was during the Holocaust. Same place he was during slavery. Sovereign and attentive and awake. Chapter 2, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it here prowling. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He's still worshiping. You just enjoy this moment. He's still worshiping. You see him, Satan? That there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, Ah, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. His story changes. He says, you take his stuff and he'll curse you. And now he says, ah, it's just stuff. He says, stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. As I read that passage, I think about guys like Keith McCord. Some of y'all know Keith or knew Keith. 
I think about the day, the morning, the corporate worship where Keith stood right here, his body racked with cancer. His wife carrying his firstborn, not even born yet. He stands right here and he says, though you slay me, I will trust you. He declares with a pale ashen hand, fist, though you slay me, I will trust you. Satan the liar says, you touch a man's bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. I think about Matt Chandler and I say, really? I hear a man worshiping. The Lord said to Satan, behold, go ahead. You go this far and no further. He's in your hand only. Spare his life. You don't go that far. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. These sores were so bad that he took pottery shards to scrape himself just to try and find some relief. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. It wasn't just the sores, though. The next verse tells us that He still had some problems. His wife said to him, she's still alive, unfortunately. Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. And he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we, watch this, shall we not receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Your version might say calamity. Shall we receive good things from God and not difficult? Not the ugly. And in all this, it says, Job did not sin with his lips. Where was God when he was covered with boils while his wife is still nagging? He's on his throne. He's attentive. He's awake. He's engaged. He's involved. The thing that I want us to see this morning is that Satan is ruler of this world. We can take all these things in. This world does lie in the power of the evil one. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. He does prowl around like a roaring lion looking for someone to eat. But the thing I want you to get this morning is that Satan devours only by permission. It's not a buffet where he can just dine freely, free-range cow, whatever he wants to eat. He eats what God lets him eat. He smacks by permission. He chews by permission. Turn to Revelation. Revelation chapter um, 13. A few years ago, I had to reckon with the honest estimation that I had no clue what the book of Revelation said. Been a Christian since I was six. At that point, I've been a at least pastoring for a year. And if anybody wants to talk about something in Revelation, I was like, oh, can we turn to somewhere else? Because it's just crazy. It's just mysterious, I perceive. So we actually set out as a church to plow through it. And over the next couple of years on Wednesday nights, we ate the book of Revelation. And we found some sweet treasures in Revelation. Let me show you one of the sweet treasures that we enjoyed. Chapter 13, speaking of the beast... Actually, two beasts. The first beast, this would be who people might refer to as the Antichrist. I want to show you something called a divine passive. It's not something that just a Greek scholar would get excited about. It's something that the people of God should get excited about. A passive verb would mean that it's something that is done to you. 
It's not something that you actively did. It's something that was done to you, like you were given permission to do something. May I be excused from the table is sort of a passive sort of verb. Yes, you may be excused. And here's some pictures of passive verbs that have to do with Satan. One of the things that are Satan's at least domain, the beasts, and these passive verbs, these divine passives are all through the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is this series of uh, trumpets, bowls, and seals that are opened and blown and broken where the tribulation and judgment is just poured out on the earth. And it's pretty gruesome. And there's weird locusts and beasts, and there's horsemen, and there's these beasts, and there's all these weird creatures in the book of Revelation. And the thing that I want you to see, at least in these couple of snapshots, that's true really in the entire book, is that they do their work only by permission. To the locusts, go this far and go no further. You can't take their life. You can sting them, but you can't kill them. You go this far and no further. Let me show you a couple of these regarding the beast. Chapter 13, verse 5. (coughs) (coughs) And the beast was given. There it is, right there. The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. It was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words by the living God. The beast was given a mouth uttering blasphemous words. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies under God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. I trust a God that allows these sort of things, just like I trust in a God that allowed the Holocaust. Just like I trust in a God that allowed slavery. That allowed a couple of kids to be born visually impaired. Or allowed a kid to be born diabetic. Or allowed a kid not to be born. I trust in that sort of God. And right here, he's given really the dogs of hell permission to go this far and no further. Let them loose. But you go only as far as I let you go. You devour by permission. Here's some more. Verse 7. Also, it was allowed to make war. This is the beast. It was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. You know, I'm not going to make a big to-do about the, the uh, rapture, but the, the Left Behind series develops this picture of the rapture. The book of Revelation doesn't have a real clear, clear picture of the rapture. It looks like saints, or at least maybe these are new saints, that they're going to they're gonna suffer. I don't know that we're going to be boop, beamed up away from that. Right here, the beast is allowed to make war on the saints, on God's people. He's saying, yes, you may go this far and go no further. They are allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority, here's another one, was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world and the book of life and the lamb that was slain. Man, these guys are doing their work, but they're doing it by permission. They probably think all the while that they're doing it on their own too. And God is actually letting the, the, the events of the judgment unfold with his guidance without being the author of sin or the author of wickedness. He's allowing the dogs of hell to do his bidding. 
Here's the second beast. Here's another divine passive in verse 15. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. These divine passives are all over this book. These agents of evil are given. They are allowed. Authority are, is given them. It's the same picture as we see in Job chapters 1 and 2. Okay, you can go do this to Job, but it's by permission. Let me show you some more picture, pictures in Revelation. Turn to chapter 12. You may not even have to turn it. Maybe on the same page. I want to show you a word that's used over and over again that I really enjoy. Starting in verse 9, this is speaking of Satan. And the great dragon was thrown. Watch that word. The great dragon was thrown down. This is speaking of the primordial war where Satan is thrown down to the earth. That ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to earth. Down to earth. I, I love that word. And his angels were thrown down with him. In verse 13, And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth... This picture is all over our Bibles, all over the book of Revelation. Turn to chapter 20. <clears throat> chapter 20, verse 1, starting in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized this ruler of the world that Jesus says is coming for me. He seized this dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the pit. Verse 10. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever and ever. I like the word thrown. Evan has a couple little stuffed animals that are little monkeys. She got him at um, bear, what are, bears or Build-A-Bear. Daniel knows what it is. Daniel's going, Build-A-Bear. <laughs> she got him at Build-A-Bear, little monkeys. And they're identical. Except one's, and she knows the difference, though. One's named Coconut and one's Mango. And she enjoys aggravating me with these two stuffed animals. <laughs> I might be sitting in a chair reading... Or I might be looking, working on my computer and Evan comes up to me with mango or nut nut right next to my ear and she starts talking like this. She would imagine this monkey would talk in a real high-pitched, <clears throat> aggravating sound. And she's loving the fact that it's killing me. <laughs> but we kind of have a routine with this nut nut and mango. This is going to sound real mean, but we really laugh about it. I will grab nut nut from her, coconut, and I will throw him across the room to where he sticks on the far wall, sort of like the cartoons, you know, where Wile E. Coyote sticks to something, and then he slides down it. I throw nut nuts so hard that there's an imprint on the far wall. And I just enjoy hearing his guts just go, you know, the little beads. I love the word throne. And I love that image of Satan being thrown around like a rag doll grabbed by the nape of his neck and chunked to the far wall, chunked into the bottomless pit, chunked into the lake of fire. 
Yes, he does some ugly things, but he does them by permission, and my God throws them around like a rag doll, like coconut. It's a picture of dominion and authority. Right, Evan? I have dominion and authority over coconut. <laughs> While we see from Scripture that Satan has tremendous power, he does. While we see that he has tremendous influence and tremendous ability, and while we see that he's hungry and that he's eager to devour and eat people, we also see that he only, we got to love this, only does it by permission. Turn to John chapter 12. Seems like it's years ago, but it's only days ago in the story. This is the day after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the week where Christ is going to be crucified. Before this, he sent the disciples out to go preach and teach, and he told them not to go to the Gentiles. And now, actually, the Gentiles are coming to him. A couple of his disciples bring the Gentiles to Jesus. This is a big day for us. They bring, the, they bring these Gentiles to Jesus. And Jesus, actually, they, they want to meet Jesus. And Jesus doesn't shake their, hey, hi, Gentiles, how you doing? He starts talking when these, when these Gentiles come to him. And here's what he says in verse 23. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's talking about his cross. Now, this is days before he's crucified. But he's referring to this hour as the hour, the time that he's nailed to a cross and the sacrifice is made. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now look down in verse 27. He's troubled over that hour. This Jesus that said, Lord, take this cup from me. Father, take this cup from me. Is troubled over this hour. And he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. All of a sudden, the God the Father speaks. He says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. In verse 30, Jesus turns and looks around. He says, did y'all hear that? Did y'all hear that voice? This voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now, in this hour. Now is the judgment of of this world, and now will the ruler of this world be cast out. We should just hear like these shock waves going right after that. Satan's behind was whipped at the cross. He was already cast out. Now he still rules this world. But he's already been defeated. He's already been defeated in the hour of the cross. He has no claim on Christ. That's what Christ is referring to in John chapter 14. He has no claim on me because I'm about to make a big chump of him. He has no claim on Christ. And this side of the cross, for those who are in Christ, he has no claim on us. Over the years, there have been some grave misunderstandings in the Christian faith about Satan's role in things and how Satan works in the story of the gospel. There was a man in the early church, a man named Origen. He lived from the years of 185 to 254 A.D., This man, we could call one of the early fathers of our faith. 
In some ways, he did guard some of the truth, but he really had some weird teachings going on. The guy was uh, believed to be an Egyptian teaching in Alexandria, Egypt. He presented something called the ransom theory. It comes from two passages that you don't, you don't need to um, turn to, but I'll share them with you. Here's the first of the two. If you want to look at them, I'll tell you where they are. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Listen to this. This is how easy false teaching can creep into the church. It says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The other passage is in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, For there's one God, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Origen grabbed these words, these two words in these two passages, ransom, and he came up with this theory called the ransom theory. And in this theory, he presented the idea that somehow in the garden, that Satan somehow won the hand and left with the loot. And that the loot was the souls of men. That Satan somehow held captive the souls of men. And that God, what he does to redeem the souls of men is he sends his son to die and then that payment is made to Satan. And what Satan didn't know is that God's going to raise his son from the dead on the third day. And he did a little switcheroo with him. This was a dominant belief in the early Christian church. It was accepted by church leaders for about a thousand years, from, 200, from the 2nd century to the 12th century. And you know what? It still prevails today in some circles. In the Word Faith Movement, Kenneth Hagin, Kenneth Copeland, guys like that who have TV shows and large followings, they continue to teach this ransom theory. It's also predominant in the Eastern Orthodox churches. What goes with this thought is that Jesus went to hell when he was crucified and had like a smackdown, duke it out, WWE, uh, uh, ultimate fighting championship down there and whipped Satan and redeemed all the souls of men. Two passages, very poorly handled. I'm not going to read them, but I'm going to give you the references if you want to look at them. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 9. says he went down to Sheol, which means he went in the earth. He was buried. And then 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. What you need to know is that there was no smackdown planned in hell to liberate the souls of men. When he hung on that cross and he turned to that repentant thief, what did he tell him? He said, today you will be with me in paradise. Not at the UFC smackdown. You will be with me in paradise, buddy. Paradise and hell aren't the same thing. The Apostles' Creed is something that many of you might know. It's been shared over the years. It was developed about 400-something A.D., around that time frame. It reads like this. Some of you might be able to recite it, depending on the denomination or your background that you came from. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost. Somebody might know the song. Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under, under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. And then it says, he descended into hell. No, he did not. The earliest versions of the Apostle Creed don't have that line in it. That was added later, likely a product of Origen's ransom theory. 
You see how easy false teaching can creep into the church? You see the impact that it can have? It can put Satan on par with God. Like God, my God owns Satan something. I have no use for that God. I have no use for a God that's caught unaware by this being. Did he create it? It doesn't sound like a God to me. God did not go into hell. He paid a ransom, all right, but he paid it to the one who was wronged. And that was the Father. We've engaged a word as a church that's been so undertaught for me most of my life. It's the word propitiation. It's in our Bible. It's not some sort of academic brainy word. The word propitiation is the word that describes what's happened in the gospel. is that we've crossed the living God and someone else paid the price in our place. The word propitiation is the word that's used of our Christ. That he stood in our stead and he absorbed the wrath that we were due. Satan's not even in that picture. God owes Satan nothing. I shared a story with some of the kids that were baptized today. I don't know if I, I can't remember if I shared it with all of them. But I shared it with my daughter, Evan. When she was wrestling with the faith, whether or what it meant to believe. I shared a story with her that just the Lord kind of provided in a moment. And I'm thankful for because it's one that's come up a lot since then. I asked Evan to imagine going across the street to the Rodden's house. The Rodden's live across the street from us over there in Woodland, right down the street, Woodland Drive that way. And uh, I said, Evan, imagine you're going across the street to to visit Bailey. And you get halfway across the street and you look down and your feet are stuck in the concrete up to your ankles. And it's dried concrete. You're stuck. And now imagine that that trip across the street is your journey in life. And you're stuck in something. Now, we've been talking about sin, so Evan knew where I was going with that. I said, what are you stuck in? She said, I'm stuck in sin. Okay, you're getting the connection now. I said, now imagine the situation. You're stuck in that concrete in the middle of the street on Woodland Drive. And you look up, and there's a big old 18-wheeler coming at you, locked and loaded barreling down the street. I don't know how many gears those things have, but they have a bunch of them. And this one's on like the last one. Coming at you, boy. And Evan's eyes got real big. Addie's eyes got real big. Yesterday we were talking about this. Her eyes got real big. I said, that thing's coming right at you. And I want you to imagine that at the last second that someone comes and picks you up out of that street, pulls you out of that concrete, the thing that you couldn't get out of on your own, and sets you in the grass, nice cool grass on the other side, safe and sound. And in the process of doing that, that person that picked you up out of the street gets nailed by that truck. And Evan's getting it so far. I said, okay, who was that that got nailed by the Mack truck? And Evan said, ah, it was Jesus. I said, yes, yes. Reminds me of Isaiah chapter 53. When I think about how he was crushed Think about that bumper. Think about what that would be like. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He picked us up out of the street. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. One of the treats of Facebook is that sometimes somebody puts a post that really blesses you. One of my friends on Facebook, a man named Richie Goodrich, posted a note the other day that Barabbas is a picture of who we are. I've always looked at Barabbas as that old scoundrel wearing a black hat that got off when Jesus got crucified in his place. And I realized that's the gospel. I'm Barabbas. All of us have gone astray. All of us have turned aside, each one to his own way. And, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all of us Barabbases. Barabbi. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. They made his, made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. And listen, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. The key question in that story, there's two key questions. Who picked you up out of the street? Well, Jesus did. And the next question is, well, who's driving the Mack truck? It's not Satan. He has no claim on my Jesus. I'll tell you who's driving that truck according to propitiation. According to... Isaiah chapter 53, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Who's driving that Mack truck? God the Father's driving that Mack truck. A holy, righteous God is bearing his, is, is unleashing his wrath on the sin of mankind, yours and mine, that Jesus bore on that cross. It was the will of him, of the Lord, to crush him. He has put him to grief we think about Satan and how he fits into this gospel story, we've got to say, we've got to realize that we are saved by God, from God. We are saved by God the Son, from God the Father. Because he paid our price. In that equation, I say, Satan who? Satan who? Satan has no claim on the Son of God. I'm going to share one passage with you and then I'm going to close. But I, and I want you to gather your stuff up. I want you to listen to this passage. John chapter 10, verse 17. Just listen. Just listen. Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life. Notice who's doing the laying. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Satan has no claim on Jesus. You got to enjoy that. You might be thinking, eh, that's nifty. What does that have to do with Tuesday? What does that have to do with my marriage? What's that have to do with the report I got from the doctor? What's that have to do with my work? My difficult job that's just absolutely almost unbearable. Well, what this does for us if we see a bigger God and a smaller Satan is it makes for a bigger view of God. He's not the guy next door. 
And he's not an old good-natured old man. He is the one true God, the Almighty, the All-Powerful. He owes Satan nothing, nothing other than a grab at the end of the age and a slam against the far wall as he melts down into the lake of fire. That's what Satan is owed. It makes for a truer view of your circumstance. Think about the context. Jesus is sharing this with guys who followed Christ for three years. They've left everything. And he's saying, I'm going someplace you can't go. What? I left everything. And he's preparing them to watch him be nailed to a cross. To watch him get buried. And he's preparing them, man, don't, don't think Satan's winning. It's going to look like it. But Satan is not going to win. In fact, he's already been beaten. If something ugly is going on in your life, you can trust that God isn't snoozing and that Satan is not winning. It shows the bully in context, doesn't it? <laughs> what bully? What freckles? What fist? The lesson is that God is always awake. God is always in control. He's working all things according to the kind intention of his will. When I think about this whole equation of the gospel, I think about God, and I think about Satan, relative God, I'm left with the question, Satan who? He has no claim on my Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this picture. Thank you so much for these additional satellites that give us a robust view of where we stand. Lord, despite what our world says, what our media says, what the movies say, and what people think about Satan being scary and about you being funny, Lord, we see what the Bible tells us and we see the truth exposed here and we see that you are the Almighty. And that Satan does nothing except by your permission. Thankful for that picture. Lord, I'm thankful for those whose flesh is touched and was touched, who bore and bear witness to your faithfulness and your goodness in the midst of those times. I'm thankful for those who have lost everything or who could lose everything, who bear witness about your goodness and who worship knowing that you are sovereign over all things. Lord, I pray that we'll not give Satan too much credit. I pray that we will beware our adversary. We will be mindful that he does prowl around, that we will resist him, but that we will worship knowing that he's already been beaten. And that the cross was that hour. Thank you for that picture, Lord. I pray that this will change how we live and love. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to share a passage with you before we have the Lord's Supper. It's a passage from the book of Leviticus. It's a book that's really about sacrifice and about eating. You may not realize that, but the book of our sacrifice, the whole worship setting, involved eating. Because the worshiper would come and he might eat part of what he's offered. And the priest would probably eat part of what is offered. And some of it would be completely burned up, called sublimated. And it would actually just 
float off as a smoke, and they would, they believed, into the actual nostrils of God, not to give him nostrils, but as a sweet aroma of worship to him. But this setting of sacrifice has a lot to do with eating. Listen to this passage from Leviticus chapter 22. A lay person, that can also be translated a stranger. A stranger shall not eat of a holy thing. No foreign guest of the priest or hired servant shall eat of a holy thing. Strangers to God have no access to holy things. They can't eat a holy meal. But if a priest buys a slave as his property for money, the slave may eat of it. And anyone born in his house may eat of his food. That sounds like the Lord's Supper right there. That sounds like the gospel right there. If a priest, our high priest, Jesus Christ, buys a slave as his property for money, the difference is that our priest bought us with blood. And he didn't pay Satan. He paid the Father. And Now that slave may eat of that meal, that holy meal, and anyone born in his house may eat of his food. Let's take the Lord's Supper enjoying that reality that we take of a holy meal because of the purchase of another. The redemption of a blessed other. Let's take it together. It's holy meal. We count it sufficient. Just pray that you'll find us satisfied with it. Thankful for the fact that it was purchased by another. And we recognize that that purchase meant the breaking of our Lord's body and the shedding of his blood. Lord, we are so thankful that our righteousness is not counted on our own, but is counted by his completely finished work. Thankful that Satan was beaten, absolutely trumped at the cross. We just enjoy that reality this morning. We enjoy the victor. Lord, in these next few minutes, I pray that you'll find us worshiping in song and that our giving will be an act of worship. Pray that you'll guard our hearts from having a feeling of paying our bills, paying our due, but that we'll give out of the just abundance that you've blessed us with. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.